So we continue our Hebrews series. Um, Just to remind us, so important, the whole book of Hebrews is written to Christians who are struggling, struggling to keep on keeping on following Jesus. And particularly they're Christians from a Jewish background, most likely feeling the persecution for most Jews had not believed in Jesus. And there was you know, increasing hostility towards those who did. And they're beginning to wonder, wouldn't it be easier just to go back? Especially after all, don't the Jews have the scriptures? You know, isn't the priesthood and the temple and all that stuff? Well, we, we can just go back to that. I'm sure God is there. God gave these things. And they're, and they're thinking maybe they can just go back and, and, and not stick out and not follow Jesus. That's how they're thinking. And the writer all the way through is encouraging them, isn't he? Don't give up. Keep on keeping on following Jesus. And as we come to the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7, and actually the same theme in chapter 8 in our Bibles, what he comes on to now, we could say um, he's comparing, he's been comparing different things as we've gone through. Jesus is better in so many different ways than than anything the Old Testament had to offer, anything they could go back to in Judaism, and indeed anything the world has to offer, Jesus is better. And particularly, he's been showing how Jesus' you know, rest is better than the, than the old Sabbath or the promised land, or how Jesus, uh, well, he's, he's better in every way. And, and in our passage here, he's, he turns his attention to the priesthood. Did you hear that in the readings? Talking about different kinds of priests, about how Jesus' priesthood is better than Aaron's priesthood. There's almost something bigger going on here. What he's really arguing is that all of the Old Testament religion, remember that's the thing they're thinking of going back to, all of Old Testament religion was actually temporary. God gave it, God gave those priests, he gave his laws, he gave his covenant, but they weren't meant to be the be-all and end-all, they were meant to point people to Jesus. They were meant to be for a time until Jesus would come. And Jesus has now come. And what he's going to argue is Jesus has brought in a new priesthood and he's actually fulfilled and got rid of the old one. We don't need that anymore. So it kind of, if they're wondering about going back to something, you could say they're trying to go back to something that doesn't exist. Do you see that? He's warning them. Don't go, you can't go back there. Jesus has fulfilled it. You've got to come to Jesus. That's the sense. All through chapter 6, or the end of chapter 6 and chapter 7, that's the argument he's making. And actually, he makes a similar argument in chapter 8 too. Just if you have a Bible open, Hebrews chapter 7, Hebrews chapter 7, you get a, he says this a few times, but that's one of the clearest statements. You can see where we're going. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 18, talking about the law of Moses, talking about all the priesthood and all, all, that's, all that Old Testament religion. In chapter 7, verse 18, he says, and do, do follow me if you can, The former regulation, that is all that law and all all that religion, all that priesthood, is set aside because it was weak and useless, for the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. See the point? One was weak and ultimately useless. It served a purpose pointing to Jesus, but it, it couldn't be Jesus. We needed Jesus to come and be Jesus. We needed Jesus to come and save and a better hope is introduced. And then in chapter 8, which is the chapter, I think Dab's preaching next. I can't remember the row, so, but certainly chapter 8, whoever's preaching next. Um, 
He's still building the same argument in verse 13 at the very end of this section, at the end of chapter 8, comparing the new covenant that Jesus brings in with the old covenant from Mount Sinai. It's the same comparison. He says this, chapter 8, verse 13. By calling this covenant new, he, our God, has made the first one obsolete. And what is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. Obsolete. We mostly experience obsolete things these days with tech, don't we? If I had a PlayStation 1, I'm not going to be able to play PlayStation 5 games when they... Is PlayStation 5 out yet, Joel? No, it's coming soon, isn't it? When it comes out, I'm not going to be able to play PlayStation 5 games this year on a console released in the 90s. It's obsolete. Well, the writer tells us this new covenant, Jesus' priesthood, what, what, all that's been fulfilled in Jesus has made the first one obsolete. We don't need it anymore. It's not compatible. What is obsolete and outdated will soon disappear. They're almost shocking words. He's describing what God put in place in the Old Testament. It was good for the purpose it was given, but it can also, God can describe things he himself put in place as obsolete, outdated, and soon to disappear. Isn't that amazing? That's what we're talking about here. Hebrews is arguing Jesus has fulfilled this stuff. So why go back to the old thing? In fact, you can't. You can't. You can't. You know, there's only been one religion that God's ever approved of. If, I, if by a religion you mean holy buildings, holy people, special costumes, funny rituals, all the things that religions have, there's only ever been one that God approved of. You know that? He gave it on Mount Sinai to Moses. He gave the priesthood. He gave all the regulations. That's the only religion God has ever given, in that sense of how people use the word religion. But it was temporary, wasn't it? We now have the reality. We don't need that stuff. I don't need to have a Passover lamb because I've got Jesus. I don't need a scapegoat to declare my sin and send it out of the camp like they used to because we've got Jesus. It was good but it was temporary. And this is what the writer wants them to get. Jesus' priesthood replaces all that religion that pointed forward to it. If I said to my kids, we're going for a picnic, I'm not actually a picnic for this, we're going on a day out, we're going to London, and we set off in the car, and we were going to drive into London. The first time we saw a sign for London, I said, look, London, and drove you home, he'd say, hang on a minute, that's just the sign. That's what he's saying. The, these Jewish Christians are risking going back to the sign and missing Jesus. Okay. And what he wants to do, it seems quite complicated. Did anyone think this is quite complicated when we had those readings? It does seem complicated, doesn't it? What he's really doing, and I, I don't think it is too complicated, um, what he's doing, he's showing us how two Old Testament scriptures in our passage, and Dav's got another one next time. Is it you, Dav? It is Dav, yeah. So next time, Dav will be seeing from Jeremiah 31 how Jesus fulfills all this stuff and we don't need the old stuff anymore. Jeremiah 31, that's one scripture where God says, I'll make a new covenant with the house of Israel and the house of Judah, not like the covenant I made with their forefathers. A new covenant. That's next time, the new covenant. Here, he's focusing on the priesthood. He wants to show how the Old Testament itself proves that it's going to become out of date one day and it's going to be replaced if I said to you, how would you prove to someone from the Old Testament, without using the New Testament, without going to the Gospels or Paul or anything else, that the Old Testament itself knew that it was only for a period and it was going to come to an end when Jesus came, 
Where would you go? Well, Hebrews tells us where to go. We're going to go back to Psalm 110. We're going to go back even further to Genesis chapter 14. Now, if you've got a Bible in your hand, this might be a useful exercise. If any of you kids have got a Bible to hand? No? Um, you can't do this on a phone. It doesn't work. If you've got a phone, it's fine. If you've got a Bible to hand, if you open it to Hebrews and put a finger in it, how long ago is your finger? If that makes sense. If my finger is in Hebrews chapter 7, how long ago in time? Back how many thousand years to the nearest thousand years? Lydia? 2,000 years. The date gives you a clue, doesn't it? It's 2020. It's about 2,000 years because our dating's based on Jesus. Absolutely. About 2,000 years ago, right? And if you then keep a finger in there and you wind back in your Bible a bit further to Psalm 110, same Bible, Psalm 110, how far further back have you put your next finger if it's in Psalm 110? Who wrote Psalm 110? Did you? David. It says that, doesn't it? That makes it about another thousand years before Hebrew. So you've gone back a thousand years. And Psalm 110 mentions this guy Melchizedek. Did you all see that? He featured a couple of times in the reading. Melchizedek is, comes from Genesis 14. So if you kept a finger in Psalm 110 and went back in, you went up with three fingers in the Bible, if you can manage that, you have a finger in Psalm. Keep hold of all these. We're going to use all these passages, by the way. Back to Genesis chapter 14, right near the beginning of the Bible. Does anyone know how much earlier I've gone? So I've gone back 2,000 years to Hebrews, right? And then another 1,000 years before Jesus to Psalm 110. That's King David. He's writing. And then David is thinking about this guy Melchizedek from the time of Abraham. How many 1,000 years ago was that? Does anyone know? Did you? Close. 4,000 years ago. So... It's as far back from now, if you go back from now all the way to Hebrews writing this, that's 2,000 years. You've got to go back another 2,000 years to Melchizedek. Isn't that incredible? We're reading stuff in the Bible that's describing things that happened as long ago before as we are now. We think the Bible's very old, don't we? It took 2,000 years to write the Bible. I think that's incredible. We're going to be looking at it. Anyway, um, so Hebrews is going back to Psalm 110, and Psalm 110 takes us back to Melchizedek in the days of Abraham, about 2000 BC. And actually, Hebrew seems really complicated until you go back and read Psalm 110, that he's kind of quoting from, and Genesis 14. And then it's a bit easier to follow. So what we're actually going to do is spend a bit of time working through Psalm 110 and then Genesis 14. And hopefully then as we read through Hebrews again together, I'm not going to preach every verse, it was a long reading, but we look at some of the key verses you'll go, oh yeah, I get it. Isn't it amazing what God is doing? Isn't it amazing how it all points to Jesus, our high priest? That's what we're going to do. So, flick back to where you've got a finger in Psalm 110, if you will. Psalm 110. Remember why we're going here? Hebrews is quoting this psalm. He's quoting it many times, actually, throughout his letter. He's quoted it several times in our passage. He's quoting this psalm to prove to us that it was always God's plan to move on from the priests, the religion of the Old Testament, and for Jesus to come and to be a perfect priest forever, to fulfill all that stuff. He's going to prove it, starting with Psalm 110. So this is David, King David, 1000 BC, 1000 years before Hebrews. Look how it begins. The Lord, the Lord in capital letters, that's Yahweh. I think here particularly referring to God the Father. 
The Lord, David says, says to my Lord. And Jesus is quite clear in the Gospels. He's talking about him, David's Lord. So we have Yahweh, God the Father, speaking to God the Son a thousand years before Jesus came. That's pretty cool, isn't it? God the Father speaking to God the Son. And what does God the Father say to God the Son? In this vision that David sees a thousand years before Jesus, David sees as he's, as he's presumably praying, as he's studying scripture, God comes to him and God says, shows him this vision. The Lord, God the Father, says to my Lord, to his son Jesus, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. David is seeing Jesus after he's died, after he's risen, after he's ascended, taking that place of honour at God's right hand. And this is one of the most quoted bits of the Old Testament and the New Testament. They all, all the apostles used to go to this to see in the Old Testament Jesus risen and exalted and at God's right hand in heaven. The place, as we heard this morning, where all authority is given to him. So what's going on here? The Father is speaking to the Son saying, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. And what's Jesus doing today at God's right hand? What's David seen about Jesus today? Look, this is what David sees of Jesus. The Lord, that is his Father, will extend your, speaking to Jesus, so the Father will extend Jesus's mighty scepter from Zion. What's a scepter, children? You don't even know what a scepter is. Something you hold? Dex? Well, yeah, it's a kind of a staff that a king would have to show that he was the king. So he is, and the king would sometimes point the scepter, and, he, and people would, you know, if the king said, jump, you jumped, and, and so on. The, the guy with the scepter is the guy in charge. So Jesus is going to be in charge. He's going to build his kingdom. Look, look at it again, verse 2. The Lord will extend your mighty scepter from Zion. Zion is another word for Jerusalem, where, where kings reigned, saying, rule in the midst of your enemies. What does David see? He sees Jesus, risen and exalted, building his church, building his kingdom, even in the midst of his enemies. Is that not what we do here? Is Jesus not building his kingdom in the midst of his enemies? Not everyone yet worships him, but our Lord Jesus Christ is building his kingdom. And verse 3 says, your troops will be willing on your day of battle. Willing, arrayed, which really means clothed in holy splendor. That means we've been made righteous by Jesus. Your young men will come to you, talking to Jesus, like dew from the morning's womb. So David has this vision. Remember where we are. A thousand years before, aren't we? A thousand years before Jesus came, David sees Jesus, risen and exalted, building his church. That's a pretty cool vision. And I'm going to miss verse 4 out. We're going to come back to it. Look at verse 5. David even sees something of the second coming in this vision he sees that the Lord gives him. Look at verse 5. The Lord is at your, speaking to God the Father, the Lord is at your, God the Father's, right hand. So it's talking about Jesus. He will crush kings on the day of his wrath. When will Jesus crush even kings on the day of his wrath? When's that going to happen? Anyone? When he comes back, he's going to come back as judge of all the earth. It hasn't happened yet. But that's what's prophesied. He will judge nations, verse 6 says in Psalm 110, heaping up the dead and crushing the rulers of the whole earth. Verse 7 says, he will drink from a brook along the way and so lift up his head. 
He'll complete the work. He'll rest. He'll be satisfied. So David is seeing Jesus. We'll get that. David is seeing Jesus in his resurrection glory, the one who is at the Father's right hand, the one who's building his kingdom, and the one who will ultimately come as judge of all the earth. That's what David sees. And right in the middle of this psalm, it's pretty amazing to see that a thousand years before, isn't it? Pretty cool. A thousand years before. What David also sees is this incredible vision of a new priest. Look at verse 4. So David is seeing Jesus in his glory. David sees this. The Lord, God the Father, has sworn and will not change his mind. This is what God the Father says to God the Son as Jesus sits at his right hand after he's risen from the dead. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Melchizedek, that guy from Abraham's day, we're going to think about it a little bit, who lived at the time of Abraham in Genesis 14. You are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. There's three epic changes there, which need to reflect on a minute. First of all, in the Old Testament, priests and kings had to be different people. Priests were from the tribe of Levi, and the kings were from other tribes. David's line, which is most of the kings, was from the tribe of Judah. Priests and kings were not allowed to be the same person. God insisted that was separate, because these people were just sinners. No one was allowed to have all that power. No one, no one could stand that, really. God insisted they were separate. But this guy, he's the king of glory, and he? he sits at God's right hand. He's the king of heaven. He's building his kingdom. He has a scepter. He's a king, yeah? And what does God say to him? You're a priest forever. So when Jesus comes, David sees, the priest would be the king. God's son would be our priest. What do priests do? Priests. Priests reconcile sinners and God, don't they? Priests bring that's like a mediator who brings us through sacrifice, bring us to God and brings God near to us. Because of our sin, there's a separation and priests and sacrifices are about bringing us together. And what does David see? He sees that God himself, God the Son, would come not only to be king, but to be the one who would reconcile us, who'd bring us, make us God's friends when we were God's enemies, deal with our sin in a perfect way. David sees that there would be a new priest who would also be God the Son and the King of Glory. That's a pretty cool vision, isn't it? <laughs> what David sees. And he also sees that this king would be a permanent king. You know, in the Old Testament, the king, sorry, the priests had to do, they were only, they were just sinners like us. They were just weak men. They had to do shifts. They could only manage so many hours and someone would come off shift and they'd be replaced. Someone would come off shift. They used to cast lots to see who would, who would take the next shift. It was just a temporary thing. And worse than that, they used to die. They were just sinners like us. They died. And such and such son would take over as priest. Such and such his son would take over as priest. Such and such his son would take over as priest. It just went on and on. Different priests, but they, they could never really solve the problem of sin, could they? But what about this king? Who's, he says to the king, you're a priest forever. A priest is coming who would permanently be able to bring us to God and deal with sin. 
there's going to be a change. The Old Testament would kind of run out. It would serve its course, but then Jesus would come, and he is the one it all pointed to. And he's of another order. The Old Testament priests, well, they, they kind of descended from Aaron. They were of the order of Aaron. Yeah, they were all descended from Aaron. This priest is from a different order, from a different tribe. He's not even from the Jewish nation. He's not even a relative of Abraham, because this priest is priest for the whole earth. Isn't that wonderful? He wasn't just a priest in Israel for the Jewish people. He's priest for the whole earth. He's not from any, any of these tribes. A new priest. That's what David sees. And I think we can be pretty sure that David was shown this amazing vision of Jesus while he was reading his Bible. I think he was in Genesis 14. So often the prophets in the Bible receive God's word while they're studying God's word. It happened with um, Daniel. Daniel was studying Jeremiah and God's message came for his people in his day. And Daniel says, I was reading Jeremiah and then the Lord spoke to me. David clear is, is clearly reading Genesis 14. So let's just turn back now. Another thousand years. This is what David was reading when the Holy Spirit showed him Jesus risen and exalted, building his church, become a priest over God's people forever. This is what David was reading. Genesis chapter 14. If we can go to Genesis chapter 14 and verse 17. Now, what's going on here? We're going to read all the background, but there'd been a bit of a, bit of a punch-up, really. All the, all the towns in those days had a king. Kings were often just kings over small towns, maybe just five or 10,000 people in a town. They'd have a king who led them and maybe had a small, sort of, a small army or a small militia of troops, kind of like a glorified mayor, but with a bit of an army and a, you know, a bit of these towns. That's what the towns would have. And all the towns had it. And the four kings of the four towns in the area where Abraham, or Abram as he was in those days, was living, one of them was Sodom and there were other kings, some so the five kings in that area, they'd been attacked by some kings from the extreme north of Israel who'd come down and kind of basically raping and pillaging, stealing animals, stealing the women and children, taking their goods and taking their property and, 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 their, and their families away. And the five kings had fought against the four kings and the five kings had lost. And so all the, the goods had been taken something like 100 miles away to the north of Israel, if you look at the, the places. But Abraham had taken his trained men, his few hundred sort of soldiers he had with him. And he'd gone, and he'd actually managed to defeat those kings who'd raided them, and he'd brought back the women, the children, even there were some men. Lot had been taken, taken captive, Abraham's nephew, and, and, and property and animals, and, and Abraham had brought it all back. And he just, he gets back to the sort of area in and around kind of Jerusalem area, we think of it today, and he arrives back with all the stuff. And the king of Sodom, one of the kings who'd lost all his stuff, comes out to meet Abraham with the intention of, well, kind of what was expected in those days was he would pay Abraham and Abraham would then give him back his women and his children and his, his animals. And he's gonna, he comes out to pay Abraham off and we pick it up at verse 17, Hebrews, sorry, Genesis 14. After Abraham returned from defeating Kedaleoma and the kings allied with him, so he beat, had this victory in the north of Israel, the king of Sodom came out to meet him in the valley of Shaveh, that is the king's valley. So we're near Jerusalem here comes out to meet him. And then, in verse 21, something happens in between. And in verse 21, the king of Sodom then speaks to Abraham, saying, give me the people and keep the goods for yourself. That was what was expected. Abraham should, was expected to be able to keep the money, but give the people back. 
So that's what's going on. And then in between these two, another king that we've never heard of comes out of nowhere, it seems, literally in mid-conversation. Abraham is having a conversation with the king of Sodom in verse 17, which continues at verse 21. Literally in between the two, this other king called Melchizedek comes out of absolutely nowhere and speaks. Verse 18, then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Probably not significant, bread and wine. Um, there would have been ordinary food and drink, and Hebrews doesn't make any mention of that, so I'm not going to dwell on the bread and wine, although we see a sort of image in there. Um, probably ordinary food and drink, but let's um, hold that thought. Melchizedek, came, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. Verse 18, he was priest of God most high. He was a priest of the one true God in heaven. And he blessed Abram, saying, Blessed be Abram by God most high, creator of heaven and earth. And praise be to God most high, who delivered your enemies into your hand. Then Abram gave him a tenth of everything. Abraham doesn't want anything to do with the wicked king of Sodom. And yet he's prepared to worship and serve God through this king, Melchizedek who is a priest of God Most High. And do you see there? Melchizedek is the one who, through whom God's blessing comes to Abraham. Melchizedek says, blessed be Abraham by God Most High, creator of heaven. He's blessing Abraham. Abraham was pretty cool in the Old Testament. He, he's the father of faith. He's the father of all who believe. He's the father of, of, of Israel, biologically. He, Melchizedek comes out and blesses Abraham. And Abraham even worships through Melchizedek. See what happens then? Melchizedek calls for praise for God from Abraham, and Abraham responds. Look at verse uh, 20. Melchizedek says, Praise be to God most high. Worship God, he's saying, who delivered your enemies into your hand. And how does Abraham worship God? Abraham gave him, Melchizedek, a tenth of everything. Melchizedek is the priest through whom Abraham draws near to God in worship and is blessed by God. Doesn't that make him a pretty epic character? This is Melchizedek. So, that's really what's going on. I just want to look at a few key things now from Hebrews 6 and 7 as we, um, as we work through this. Let's read the, the second half of Hebrews 6 together. Hebrews 6, verses 13 onwards. When God made his promise to Abraham, since no one was greater for him to swear by, he swore by himself, saying, I will surely bless you and give you many descendants. And so after waiting patiently, Abraham received what was promised. People swear by someone greater than themselves, and the oath confirms what he said and puts an end to all argument. Why does he start talking about God swearing oaths? It comes up a few times in here. It's kind of simple. When God makes his epic promises in the Bible to Abraham, to David, even when he tells the, the, the people in Numbers that they won't go into the promised land, he also swears an oath there. God swears oaths almost to emphasize, as he says here, to underline it so that they can have confidence God is going to do the thing he says. These really, really big moments through the Bible, like the promise to Abraham in Genesis 22, the, the covenant with David and so on, God swears 
an oath. It's really odd. We don't swear oaths. In fact, we're told not to swear oaths. But God swears oaths at these epic moments. And where have we just read of God swearing an oath? Therefore, is one of the handful of epic moments in the Bible. Psalm 110, verse 4. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You, Jesus, a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. Do you see the point he's making? Psalm 110 is a big deal. It almost changes what the whole Bible means. It's that significant, like the covenant with Abraham and the covenant with David. And he then says, look, verse 17, Hebrews 6, verse 17, he then applies that to our promise to Psalm 110. Because God wanted to make the unchanging nature of his purpose very clear to the heirs of what was promised, he confirmed it with an oath, didn't he? In Psalm 110, verse 4, God made an oath about Jesus being our priest. God did that so that by two unchangeable things, the promise and the oath, in which it's impossible for God to lie, we, who have fled to take hold of the hope set before us, might be greatly encouraged. In case we don't get what he's talking about, he spells it out in verse 19. Jesus, our priest, he's our hope. And God has sworn that Jesus is going to stand forever so that we can always be accepted to God through him. So we'll always be welcome through Jesus. So we'll always have a way to the Father. And look what he says, verse 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul. This hope that comes from Psalm 110, verse 4. You, the Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Jesus, you are a priest forever of the order of Melchizedek. Hebrews 6, then 19. We have this hope as an anchor for the soul, firm and secure. It enters the inner sanctuary behind the curtain. It pictures God's temple in heaven, God's presence in heaven like a temple. Jesus has gone in behind the curtain to the Holy of Holies where God is, where our forerunner Jesus has entered on our behalf. Verse 20. He has become a high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It's absolutely epic. Old Testament religion was just a signpost, just temporary. But Jesus, God has sworn, and we can rely on it, Jesus ever stands in God's presence to bring us to him. His sacrifice is always good enough, isn't it? His cross is always good enough to bring us to God. Whatever we've done, however we feel, Jesus brings us to the Father. And we're accepted because Jesus brings us. He is that priest who stands forever according to God's promise, according to God's oath. We could never be, brothers and sisters, more safe for now or indeed for eternity than we are if we're in Jesus. And Jesus brings us to the holy place where God is. We've just sung, haven't we? My life is safe with Christ on high, with Christ my Saviour and my God. Where else would we go when we can come to God in Jesus? No one else makes us eternally safe. We could never be more safe. We could never be more accepted than we are. Jesus has brought us in. He's delivered us to God the Father. He's he's brought sinful man and holy God together. We could never be more accepted than we are in Jesus. Because Jesus is priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. We could never be more secure. Never be more accepted. You know... We're not just accepted, and we were talking about this in the men's meeting, interesting, we're not just accepted 
in God's presence because somehow Jesus is accepted and, and, and sort of we're in him and therefore we're accepted. It's, it's more than that. Jesus has brought us, the writer says. He's brought us there. He's made us clean. We stand almost in our own right because we first stand in Jesus gives us his, his righteousness. He cleans us up. He brings us in. We can genuinely come in ourselves to God because our forerunner, I love that language. Hebrews calls him a forerunner. He goes first, but we follow. Our forerunner stands. He brings us. That's our Jesus. What he's saying to these Hebrew Christians is, where, where do you think you're going? Going back to Judaism, going back to the Old Testament without Jesus. It's useless. It points to Jesus. Whoever you are, whatever you've done, your only hope is Jesus, the high priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. It reminded me in John 6. Do you know the story in John 6 when so many Jewish people are deserting Jesus as he teaches? They're just deserting him. They find his teaching hard. They find what he's calling them to too hard. And Jesus says to the apostles, are you going to desert me too? And Peter looks and he says, John 6, 68, Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom should we go? You have the words of eternal life. Hebrews is saying to these Jews, what are you doing? Where are you going? Jesus is the one who makes you eternally secure. He's the one who brings you to the Father, who deals with your sin and makes you holy and brings you in. And then chapter 7, let's look at the beginning of chapter 7. Chapter 7, verses 1 and 2. Hebrews turns his firepower almost in his mind right back to looking at Genesis 14. What must David have seen when he wrote Psalm 110 from Genesis 14? That story of Melchizedek. This is what he says. He starts off fairly, explaining fairly plain things. Then he starts to point out some really interesting things. Verse 1 of chapter 7, Hebrews writes, This Melchizedek in Genesis 14 was king of Salem and priest of God Most High. He met Abraham returning from the defeat of the kings and blessed him and Abraham gave him a tenth of everything. We've looked at that already, haven't we? Hebrews draws attention to it, that Abraham worships through Melchizedek. Abraham receives God's blessing through Melchizedek. That makes Melchizedek pretty awesome. And then he says, verse 2, continuing... First, the name Melchizedek means king of righteousness. Like Jesus. This king is king of righteousness. Jesus is the one, not only who is righteous, but who makes his people righteous. What a name for someone who so clearly pictures the Lord Jesus in his resurrection glory. Melchizedek means king of righteousness. So Jesus is our priest and our king. He's the king of righteousness. Brothers and sisters, there's nothing we need more than to be righteous before God. Jesus is the righteous king who makes us righteous, who gives us his righteousness, who clothes us in righteousness, which Psalm 118 already mentioned early on in verse 2 and 3. And then he says, king of Salem means king of peace. Salem was a fairly common town name. In those days, although from the geography of the Valley of the, the Kings, this is almost certainly Jerusalem, where David would have been writing this psalm from, the place where the place Zion, where God's kings reign, where Messiah reigned, was to reign. King of Salem means king of peace. 
Jesus is the king who brings about righteousness and the king who brings about peace, shalom, wholeness, who makes his people whole, who heals his people. This is our Jesus. This is what David saw from Genesis 14. Then he puts something something really interesting in verse 3. He he spots something that's kind of missing. This is Hebrews 7, verse 3. Something that is missing from the Genesis account that you would expect to be there. Anyone who's anyone in the Genesis story has a genealogy, has a father, has a mother. We learn about their life, their death. Literally nothing. This guy appears. Remember where he appeared? He appeared halfway through a conversation Abraham was having with the king of Sodom. He just appears, he disappears, and nothing else is said of him for a thousand years until David realizes he's a picture of Jesus. I think that's pretty cool. That's what happens. He just appears halfway through a conversation with the king of Sodom. And this is what Hebrews writes about it. Hebrews notes that. He says this, Hebrews 7 verse 3, without father or mother, without genealogy, that means ancestry, without beginning of days or end of life, resembling, or but like we could translate it, resembling the Son of God, he, Melchizedek, remains a priest forever. In other words, God so supernaturally arranged things, what happened in those days, and how Moses recorded it, that he's a perfect picture. Many people think he maybe was Jesus, and you can make quite a compelling case for that. Whether he was or wasn't the Lord Jesus, if I'm honest, I'm not sure. Whether he was or wasn't an actual pre-incarnate appearing of the Lord Jesus. He certainly is a perfect picture of the Lord Jesus, isn't he? And that's why the writer says, look, he's the most, he's like the greatest man ever. He was greater than Abraham, and yet without father or mother, without genealogy, without beginning of of, of days or end of life, resembling the Son of God, he remains a priest forever. And in the next section, I'm not going to look at it in any detail, but for verses four down to nine, he's really making that point. Just look, let's just look at verse four for the sake of time. He's showing in so many different ways how much greater than anyone else in the Old Testament Melchizedek is. He says this, look at verse 4 of Hebrews 7. Just think how great he was. In other words, how shocking it is that he's got no genealogy or any of that. Just think how great he was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth. Abraham is the father of all who believe. All the Jews like to call themselves sons of Abraham. In fact, the Arabs today call themselves sons of Abraham. I mean, we see it as the great man of history by like half the planet. And Hebrews just say, yeah, yeah, but Melchizedek's greater. Melchizedek is greater. Just think how great Melchizedek was. Even the patriarch Abraham gave him a tenth of the plunder. I think, therefore, we can make a case that Melchizedek is at least the greatest man in the whole of the Old Testament. And he had no genealogy no father or mother, no beginning of days, no end of life. In fact, he only appears for a few seconds in the middle of a conversation Abraham's having with the king of Sodom. God has ordained things that this man might be a picture of Jesus. And David sees it, doesn't he? David's probably meditating on these verses a thousand years later, writing Psalm 110. He sees Jesus as risen and ascended, and he, he declares by the Holy Spirit, you are priests forever in the order of Melchizedek. So what are the implications of this for how we read the Bible? Let's look on to verse 11 now. He makes this point twice in two big chunks. I'm just going to try, try and show you this. Basically, this proves, he says, that the Old Testament was temporary and Jesus is the reality. 
How, how do we prove that? This change of the priesthood, this new priest that was promised, proves that everything changes. Hebrews 7 verse 11. If perfection, I think here he means if we could be made perfect, if we could be brought into God's presence and made sinless and pure and righteous, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, that's the Old Testament priesthood, if perfection could have been attained through the Levitical priesthood, and indeed the law given to the people established that priesthood, so if perfection could have been attained through the priesthood and, and all the laws Moses gave when he set that priesthood up, so this is Mount Sinai, the Old Covenant, if perfection could have been attained through the Old Covenant and, and the priests of the Old Testament, why was there still a need for another priest to come one in the order of Melchizedek, not in the order of Aaron. In other words, it's obvious that the Old, Testament, the Old Testament priesthood was never meant to actually save us from our sin. It was a picture of something. The reality is Jesus. Otherwise, why would the Bible have said Jesus had to come and set up a new priesthood? Verse 12 then makes it plain. For when the priesthood is changed, the law must be changed also. On Mount Sinai... Moses gave one covenant, the Sinai covenant, the covenant made with the people on Mount Sinai, summarized up into the Ten Commandments, with one law, it contained um, different kinds of laws, but it was one law, and it established one priesthood. And it stands or falls together. Brothers and sisters, the whole package was for a period until Jesus would come fulfill it and set up the eternal reality. That's what he's saying it was all temporary, it all points to Jesus, it all teaches about Jesus, but it has all gone. That's why we don't have funny food rules or any of those other things. It's one package. It stands and falls together. We live, don't we, by Jesus and his word. He interprets, he's told us what we're to take from that. The Sermon on the Mount, I've preached on this last week, is Jesus taking the law and saying, I fulfilled it all. And this is how I want you to live. And he's told us what it means and how it's to apply in his church. Jesus and his apostles give us his word and we follow what they say. They interpret what went before that Jesus has fulfilled. That's what he's saying. And he makes that point again. Verses 13 to 19. It's building up to verse 18 and 19. And he makes the same point. Listen, I'm just going to read these quickly to get down to 18 and 19. It's the same point. Listen to this again. He of whom these things are said, that's Jesus, belonged to a different tribe. He wasn't a Levite. He wasn't a, a priest in Old Testament. Uh, he wasn't qualified according to the Old Testament to be priest. He had to be a different kind of priest. Jesus, of whom these things are said, belonged to a different tribe. And no one from that tribe has ever served at the altar, for it's clear that our Lord descended from Judah in David's line. And in regard to that tribe, the tribe of Judah, Moses said nothing about priests, so the Sinai covenant, the old covenant, doesn't let Jesus be a priest. And what we have said is even more clear if another priest, like Melchizedek, appears, one who has become a priest, not on the basis of a regulation as to his ancestry. In other words, not because he's descended from Levi, when someone died, the next one becomes priest and so on, but on the basis of the power of an indestructible life. For it's declared... Psalm 110, verse 4, you are a priest forever in the order of Melchizedek. And here's the conclusion, verse 18, to that argument. The former regulation, the old covenant, its priesthood and so on, is set aside because it was weak and useless. 
For the law, not just the priesthood, the law made nothing perfect. All the law really did was show us we were sinners and crushed us, killed us, if you like. It has a value in killing us. It doesn't have a value in saving us or transforming us, does it? The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless. For the law made nothing perfect, and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. Brothers and sisters, we don't come to God by law or religion or any of those things. We come to God by Jesus, the priest God has appointed, who lived for us, who died for us, who who shed his blood, who took God's wrath in our place, who is perfectly righteous and who makes us righteous and who brings us in as the perfect mediator to the very presence of God. And we live today not by law, but by Jesus and his word from him and from his apostles in the power of the Holy Spirit. The former regulation is set aside because it was weak and useless for the law made nothing perfect and a better hope is introduced by which we draw near to God. As he comes to his conclusion, we we read on verse 20, and it's not without an oath. Others became priests without any oath, but he, Jesus, became a priest with an oath when God said to him, The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. Still Psalm 110, you are a priest forever. Because of this oath, Jesus has become the guarantor of a better covenant. There's something really important here. When the New Testament came, it sort of reinterpreted what had gone before. Jesus came and said, I'm the Lord. I get to say what this means and interpret it, right? How, or what would you say if someone else, some prophet arrived tomorrow and said, I've got a new interpretation, I'm reinterpreting the New Testament. If, if it can happen once, if, if these apostles and so on could, could, could add to the Bible, what stops someone else like the Mormons or the JWs or the Adventists or the Catholics or anyone else adding tradition or anything else on there and saying this has authority? And the point is this, the Old Testament itself said it was temporary and that Jesus would come. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You're a priest forever. But when Jesus comes, it's permanent. Do you see, one was temporary. Something temporary, the Old Testament, gives away to something permanent, the New Testament. The New Testament, though, is permanent. The, New, the Bible doesn't envisage anyone adding something and changing the New Testament. It is permanent. Jesus is priest forever. Even in glory, it's going to be about Jesus. We're going to come to God through Jesus. And anyone who tries to add anything to God's revelation, is a heretic. The end of the book of Revelation, it says, as the Bible comes to a close, it effectively calls down curses and judgment on anyone who would add to God's word. You see the difference? The Lord has sworn to Jesus, you're a priest forever. He didn't swear that to Levi and Aaron. They were a temporary priesthood. What God has now set up is permanent. It will go on into eternity. In fact, the new heavens and the new earth look like a temple. It's a cube. It's the Holy of Holies. The only cubes in the Bible are the Old Testament Holy of Holies and the New Jerusalem. Our our Lord Jesus, our priest, is taking us there. He's our forerunner. He's taking us into God's presence. That's our Jesus. We don't need a Book of Mormon or the JWs with their Watchtower magazine or the Adventists with, I can't remember her name, or or Popes or anything else. The Bible is finished and Jesus is taking us to glory in the Holy of Holies. Let's conclude then. I'm just going to read the last three verses of Hebrews 7, and uh, let them be our conclusion. Let's 
flip on, sorry, the last few verses. Verses 26. Verse 26. Um, Such a high priest, Jesus, such a high priest truly meets our need. One who is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, exalted above the heavens. Don't you want him taking you into God's presence? Not about how we feel. It's about the fact that Jesus is holy, blameless, pure, set apart from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He's the one who takes us in to glory. Unlike the other high priests, he doesn't need to offer sacrifices day after day, first for his own sins and the sins of the people. Why not? Because he's eternal and he's righteous. He, Jesus, didn't die for his own sins. He didn't sacrifice for his own sins. What did Jesus do? He, Jesus, sacrificed, verse 27, for their sins, our sins, once for all, when he offered himself. Jesus' one sacrifice is sufficient for whosoever would come to him. There's no repeat needed. As we sing, Jesus paid it all, all to him I owe. Sin had left a crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Verse 28, as we conclude, the law appoints as high priests men in all their weakness, but the oath, that is Psalm 110 verse 4, which appoints Jesus, the oath which came after the law, appointed the Son, who has been made perfect forever.